hello and welcome to another episode of Product Plus, the podcast where we bring you authentic, in-depth talks with product managers, founders, and business experts across Asia Pacific. I'm your host, Ben Byrne, and our mission here is simple but impactful, to empower and inspire the next generation of product leaders with real stories and actionable insights. If you're passionate about product management, strategy, and business growth, you're in the right place. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Product Plus podcast. Uh, today, our guest is Holly Hickman. Holly is a product manager from Kick, a company focused on challenging toxic wellness trends and radically changing how we approach wellness. Holly's also deeply rooted in the world of physical fitness. She's a seasoned Pilates instructor and dance teacher, uh, bringing a unique blend of discipline and expertise to her role at Kick. Holly, welcome to Product Plus. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no, of course. Thank you for joining us. It's uh, it's great to have you here. Um, look, to kick things off, you know, I suppose the first question that comes to mind is, how does a dance and Pilates instructor end up managing products at a tech slash wellness company? What's the what's the story? Yeah, it's a bit of a different bit of a different transition. I started dance. I've danced my whole life, and I went into full time dance when I finished school as more of a gap year than anything. I always knew I wanted to do business and kind of management and people. Mm. I didn't know where or in what field. I grew up with a bit of a marketing background with my dad being in advertising. So I kind of had this pre predisposed idea of what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to dance first and utilize my young body, I guess. So sure. when I finished school, I went into full-time dance for two years, which was the most challenging, rewarding years of my life. Full-time as well, that's a massive commitment. Yeah, it was a massive commitment to also, like, you're committing to your body for, for eight hours a day, two years straight. There's not a lot of time outside of that, and you're working to try to put yourself through this training as well. So mm. it was incredibly challenging, and I very early on realized I wouldn't be able to kind of afford <laughs> while dancing and paying for it. So sure. I train. And I imagine dance. even like outside of dance, you're still kind of thinking about fitness and yeah. and like you're, you're watching what you're eating and you're, you know, spending time in the gym or doing other kind of fitness related activities too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I was training in Pilates at the time, kind of had started reformer and developed a love for it. And I also went into personal training because I needed to work early hours and I needed to kind of accommodate to that dance lifestyle. So I would work from 5 a.m. at F45 till 8 a.m. And then I'd drive straight and train all day in dance. Wow. Uh, and after two years, I kind of, I knew I didn't want to pursue it as a career because it was my my passion and my happy place. And I just, I couldn't ruin that. And so I decided to go to uni trimesterly and just smash mm. out a bachelor in business. Just smash one out. Yeah. Just smash one out. <laughs> holidays, it's fine. Yep. I had a similar experience. I, I, I had a similar trajectory where I was actually working and then got into study while I was working as well. And it, I know, you know, even just from a coordination perspective and like getting assignments done and like all of that sort of stuff, uh, you're balancing a lot, right? You really are. I think something that it always goes back to dance, but something that my dance teachers always instilled in me is preparation prevents piss poor performance. Okay. I, I like the saying. Like, yeah. It carries across uh, with with dance and with business and with personal training and all those kinds of things in uni. You just have to be so prepared, you would know, and so on top mm. of it so that you don't let the ball drop in any area. It was a bit of a juggling act, but definitely teaches you a lot. 
And yeah. I think that juggling actually is what product is, is juggling a bunch of different things too. So it kind of builds up in those skills, which is amazing. Mm. But yeah, I, I finished my degree, still kind of went on that marketing path more so because people were telling me to do so. I'd always done photography and Photoshop and a lot of uh, creative side of things. So I created a list and was like, well, I really want to help people. I want to continue this wellness passion, but I also want to do marketing at the time. I thought I did. Mm. So that's why I kind of generated a list of 10 different companies, Lululemon, Nike, all those kinds of things. But Kick was actually at the top because of that holistic approach. And I'd followed the girls for so long and loved so much what the company did. How, yeah. How did you find out about Kick? What, what was the discovery? Like, when did that come along? Yeah. So I actually, I followed Steph from kind of very early on in her influencer type days. And it was actually really interesting. I was speaking to Laura about this the other day, our CEO. I actually was following both of them. And then I got quite unwell in full time. I wasn't wasn't eating, which is a very common thing for dancers. Mm, sure. And so, and for women in general as well. But just in front of a mirror, nine to five, Monday to Friday, the relationship you develop with your body is it's very different and kind of very mild. complex. Yeah. yeah, very complex. It's kind of warped. And I ended up as part of my recovery unfollowing them because I needed that realistic reinforcement across all like social media, across everything of what my body would look like. And I just, mm. they're models, they're uh, the most beautiful people inside and out. But at the time I only knew out. And yeah. so I actually unfollowed them. And then when they came out with the background behind Kick, which was them both recovering from their eating disorder journeys, I refollowed them and was like, wow, this is actually something that I really want to be a part of. And so- I was a subscriber from their first platform, uh, which was a like a single workout each day that they served to you on an app. Right. Okay. It was really cool. Um, I was actually looking at my subscription list, like my personal profile the other day at work, and I was like, wow, I've really been a part of this for a while. <laughs> been involved from day one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In, in different yeah. capacities, of course, yeah. Yeah, I think that develops the passion as well for what they do because the I was a consumer, so I knew mm. what I wanted out of the platform and why I believed in the platform as a consumer. So then to transition that into a workplace was kind of a dream, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I I ended up interning with them, which was a bit of a roundabout way to get there. I got a lot of just dead ends from all the companies I was applying for. I was really expecting no's and I just got radio silence and I was like, okay, cool. Mm. Yeah, it's a common experience with the with the application process, job searching. Yeah. Uh, it's something I've gone through recently too where, yeah, you're applying for 50 jobs, 100 jobs, whatever it happens to be, and a lot of the time it's just dead silence. Yeah. Um, like, not even the automatic responder, right? Um, no. Yeah. Which, so you, you had your 10 companies, your kick was at the top, you'd reached out to all of them, just had you inquired or were you applying for specific roles? I had inquired, so none of them were advertising for internship positions and I needed to do this internship for uni. So it wasn't like I needed a job yet, but mm. I did have a dream of kind of facilitating that internship into a job straight out of uni. And that's why you could pick where you wanted to do your placement. And I'd saved it for the end because I knew I really wanted to use that as a transition into the workforce. Sure. And so, yeah, I applied for a bunch of different ones with just a cover letter and a little elevator pitch and resume and said, this is what I can offer kind of combining that holistic wellness, regardless of which company it was, with uh, Pilates and dance teaching and personal training in mm. combination with business. And, yeah, as I said, just got nothing. Crickets. Radio <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Yeah. 
And so I sat down and was like, okay, I'll just, I won't stop until I get a no from each one and I'll just work my way through and what's meant to be will be. And after a very in-depth search on the internet, I managed to find a number that was labeled as keep it cleaner. So I texted it an elevator pitch and was like, we'll, we'll just see what happens. I still it's have so it. Bold. <laughs> yeah. It's such a bold move. I know. I was just, I was like, I I need to give it a go. I will hate myself if I don't give it my best shot. And especially with Steph and Laura's profiles, it, they're unreachable because the amount of reach outs they get on the daily is incredible. Yeah. So just and, like uh, for anyone that doesn't know Steph and Laura, um, what, yeah, where do they come from? They got a big following. Like what's yeah. their... Yeah. yeah, so Steph and Laura are entrepreneurs. They previously and still are influencers mainly on Instagram as their main platform. And they kind of built up they built up their following while they were in the modeling industry, but whilst they were in the modeling industry, they also developed different eating disorders, but uh pushed by the same the same driver within that mm-hmm. industry. And so they both got to a point where they had enough of restrictive eating, they had enough of punishing their body for not looking a certain way. And so they developed an ebook called Keep It Clean. And then they developed a website called Keep It Cleaner. And as that's evolved and the holistic wellness ethos kind of encapsulated what Kick was about, it became Kick, mm. which is a one stop, one stop app for recipes, meditations, meals, et cetera. And so they they really, yeah, developed this community based on their platform that has now gone global. And they continue their they continue their influencer side, but it's always from that holistic wellness passion that they have. And yeah. yeah, they're just they're so heavily involved in the company. They we work alongside them every single day and they're the hardest workers that I know. So yeah. very lucky to be in I'm life. seeing some alignments already. Like, you know, you're talking about dance, you're talking about studying, even your approach to how you're applying for these jobs, kind of coming up with your list and applying to them one by one. Uh, you know, seeking out phone numbers and messaging directly. Like, I know it's not the kind of thing we'd recommend to everyone, but like it kind of really already showcases that performance mindset you've got and like you're so structured and organized. I imagine like once you joined Kick, that was something they probably identified too, right? Yeah, totally. I, I joined as their marketing intern, but I took on CX and their entire customer service system. Their person that was doing that at the time actually went on leave the week after I started. So they kind of were just like, here you go, good luck. (laughs) See how you go, which I was like, yeah, this is the challenges I wanted. So we'll- The deep end, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so I was doing marketing side things. They were so good at bringing me along through, straight away I was in the full marketing team meetings and Slack channels and learning so much in that space. But as I was doing the customer service, I, because I was new and subscription platforms, anyone that's involved in them would know are very complex with, payment methods and login methods and all the user issues that come through that that funnel or that channel. I very quickly got heavily involved with our engineers in working out. We didn't have a product team at the time. So relaying problems to them, working out how to effectively triage symptoms versus just a user, a user error and helping them resolve it on their side comparative to what is a problem with our platform. Mm. And so I had to kind of utilize, as you said, that that time management, that structure with their time very early on as well in making sure obviously time is money and their incredible talented engineers where their time is very valuable. And so I had to really work on that prioritization from the get-go, even though I was an intern in in what I raised to them and what I was willing to kind of detract their their focus from, um, if it was worth it. Right. So yeah. 
yeah, it was definitely carried across from the get-go at Kick, but the customer service side of it really facilitated that that introduction into product for sure. Yeah, and, and tell me, um, yeah, of course, you started as a user, which gives it a really interesting perspective because then you come in and you see behind the scenes what's going on, right? Mm. And my experience personally is, you know, what's released to market is usually fairly polished. And then you're jumping behind the scenes and you're, you're seeing what's going on internally. Were things quite organized or was it kind of all just kind of startup vibes or? Definitely startup vibes for mm. sure. I think it did meet my expectation in that everything is so user centric. Everything that anyone puts forward, Steph particularly, is very community driven. That's kind of her, she's the chief community officer and that is her passion. And so every meeting that we had, that community voice was echoed through, which essentially mm -hmm. is product. It's that user-centric approach, but it actually is quite company-wide. So it definitely was startup, definitely a lot of pivoting and market analysis and kind of adapting to what the community are wanting, what the market's doing, especially coming out of COVID being an online fitness platform. Yeah. Where do you where do you sit when you've for two years been the prime because you're the only access to fitness that people have. Sure. So it definitely was a really interesting time to be part of the company, uh, especially, yeah, in after, after the lockdowns. But I think the passion never never dies, especially from the girls, and so I think that kind of carries it through, through the startup yeah. chaos, which is inevitable. Oh, and it, it all started from such a, an important place, right? There's like a real mission behind it. Um, and it's hard to lose the passion. It's hard to lose the motivation when, like, it's so mission-driven. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't slip. And it's mm. very easy as well when things are challenging to look back on the impact you're making in the testimonials that we hear from people about getting out of the position that Steph and Laura and I was in through that holistic approach and through feeling supported and like you found your people. It definitely, it creates a passion for it for sure. Yeah. And it sounds like you ended up almost with like two communities. Like one is like the whole kit community uh, of users that you're like engaging with really closely, but also you've now found your place at Kick uh, in a in a product manager role that you kind of just wound up in, right? Um, I think that's a pretty common storyline in terms of at least you don't often get product managers that went and studied product management and then got a product manager role, right? Um, how is how has that transition been for you coming from fitness side? then into marketing and then into product, like skill sets and, and all that. Yeah, it definitely was, it was challenging but amazing because I feel like I found my place, which I'd been searching for for so long. I'd always said throughout school and then throughout uni that I was swimming in a bunch of different lanes and I wasn't winning in any of them, so I didn't know which to put my time and energy into. I just kind of, I gave 100% to everything, which is obviously not the best sometimes yeah. as well. But yeah. I always said I'll, I'll give it my best shot because somehow I'll find why I'm why I'm working this hard and why I'm so passionate about so many things. They have to kind of align. And so my head of engineering at Kick, when he sat me down and he explained, it was in his first couple of weeks and he explained what product was and said, it, it kind of sounds like this is what you're you're doing, but is that what you want to officially do? And I had no idea what product even was. This was literally a year ago. Mm. And they don't talk about it at uni within the business world. And when I was looking into tech, even that within the uni environment, it's still not spoken about. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it was really valuable to see, like, I can combine my love for like data and qualitative and quantitative feedback and that user-centric approach and 
the passion I have as well for I've always been really intrigued by emotional intelligence and empathy and developing those people skills and that product just combines so many of those things so it was yeah it was an incredibly rewarding thing to realize but at the same time I'd been in marketing for a year as well so mm-hmm. transitioning internally across teams in a startup in any company but in a startup where there are a lot of people who are jack of all trades kind of carrying a bunch of or wearing a bunch of different hats it was definitely a very challenging and it still is kind of getting out of it a challenging thing because you you can't not be the person that knew how to do that once sure so it's yeah. as much figure it out right yeah if there's something that you need to do you just have to kind of wow let's just get into problem solving mode like how do we tackle this yeah yeah exactly and it's kind of sharing your your knowledge that you've developed over a long period of time but the transition as it starts to roll over, it needs to happen a bit faster than you can share that knowledge. So you just kind of have to wear a bunch of different hats and push through a bunch of different competing priorities and continuously evaluate those priorities to make sure you're not dropping the ball. Definitely, Mm. definitely the biggest challenge for sure, I would say. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, another kind of coming back to the the customer focus, because I think that's fascinating. Uh, Yeah. Going from user to kind of you're in a marketing mindset already, right? So you're already thinking about like, how will people feel about something, interpret something? What are they going to do next? How will this influence their behavior? Mm. Uh, I imagine that's a relatively smooth transition through to products, at least in terms of customer mindset. Absolutely. I think inadvertently I had been in the customer mindset and the user-centric focus the whole time and I hadn't realized. And I think that comes from, even even down to Pilates instructing, like you're thinking about how they feel about their mm. body and how they feel in your class and receptive to feedback and all those kinds of things and you're monitoring your numbers and all that. So it kind of, it starts from, for me, way before product. Yeah. And then when I, when I hit marketing, that was the thing I found, I it made the most sense. What I found really challenging was trying to sell something to people that weren't explicitly looking for it. But what I found really easy was understanding what they're looking for and trying to produce that. So again, that that's what product what product is and so that that transition was very it felt very seamless and very natural and as I said it felt like I found my place and what the purpose was was mm. trying to help people with what they needed yeah and you connected with it really deeply right yeah hundred percent yeah uh, it's fascinating because it sounds like you've kind of gone from being and, and yeah you know, I know we hate to acknowledge this but a, a lot of marketing out there today is really trying to create a demand for something. Uh, or, or create a need where I think the product perspective is often let's discover a need and then fit the product to it, um, which is, I think, a healthier way to approach it. I completely agree. I think <clears throat> it's it's much easier to stay focused and also to pivot and not take things. It, it's weird. There's a lot more pressure on it, but there are also it's a lot less pressure because you were able to validate why that thing, why you think at least it's needed, whether it be a feature, whether it be a refinement, whether it be like pulling things right back and simplifying things for users. Yeah. You at least can back yourself through qual and quant data that I'm going to make this assumption, but I'm going to hedge my bets on all of this tangible evidence and push it through and see, Mm -hmm. see the result. And obviously a lot of the time you, it doesn't fail, but you learn. It doesn't work how you expected it to, and you sure, might not yeah. solve that problem. <laughs> and a lot of the time as well, users will say one thing and they actually want or need another. 
they behave in a different way. And so there's obviously that balancing act, but it's it's a lot easier to process and see that pathway and help help users solve their problems. For mm. them. Yeah, yeah. When, when you can identify what they need. So Absolutely. talk to me a little bit about uh, your process to customer research, to understanding the user. Like, where do you start? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. It's actually within Kick. It's it's very complex because our breadth of offering is really broad. There's mm. so many different pillars of health, and a lot of apps in the industry, in the health and health and wellness industry, they pick one and they really focus on it. So kind of making sure that whether one stop shop for everything, but you're doing everything well is a definitely a really challenging thing. I think I'm always someone that I love to start with quant data because I'm always a black and white person and that qual feedback becomes gray and it's completely necessary for product. But starting with quant, it's very good to validate yes and no. When you mm. hear user feedback, it definitely is amazing for like for kickstarting ideas, but when you have X amount of subscribers with all different opinions and needs, they are going to tell you a bunch of different things. And if you hone in on one and get really passionate about this one user that has this one specific problem, it's not a feasible thing to pursue that without the quant backing. So yeah. as much as I I try to use as many products as I can and I try to use our product as much as I can as well and understand that and notice when things pop up for me, I still go back to that quant data and go, okay, but how do I validate that numbers wise, this is worth putting more time into investigating? So yeah. okay, yeah, that's usually how I how I start. Even even looking down to things as simple as areas of the app people are viewing most and that traction and going, okay, why is that gripping them? Is it their intention? Is it their focus? Is it the way it's structured and designed? And working through those flows as well then I, yeah, really, really can validate those initiatives and those project levels and then start to pull those users in, which right. is my favourite part, is getting that qual feedback from them once I've validated conceptually. Yeah, okay. So, so it sounds like, yeah, you, you kind of have, because often in market research it's flipped on its head, but I see so many times product is taking more of the quant perspective because mm-hmm. metrics are more readily available. You can kind right. of tag up all your apps and you can measure it in different ways. Um, you know, market research is normally going, let's use some qual to um, do like exploratory research, go really deep on a small number of people mm. and then use the quant to go, okay, now we need scale. Let's measure the universe of people on this app. Let's measure people, you know, whatever it happens to be. Mm. Um, how do you balance those two things of like you're, you've kind of sent something from the community, a feature that might have value or, or something like that, and then putting it through to a a real life test, whether it be, you know, looking at metrics or running some like fake door stuff or whatever it may be. Yeah. We're really looking into prototyping and MVP at the moment is something that we're really focusing on and trying to hone in our processes on is getting it in front of people before it's shipped and before we've invested that engineer time to understand if we've correctly interpreted the problem mm. and we're actually solving the problem, I think for quite a while, especially without a product team, we were very feature factory driven and we were also very solution driven. And we would go, okay, there's this thing and we're going to solve it this way, but getting to the bottom of the problem wasn't done. And so we'd be like, okay, but it didn't actually fix this problem. And it turns out that problem was way bigger. So mm-hmm. 
kind of taking things right back to we've facilitated now through a bunch of call and quant data three main problems we know we have within our app and within those there are so many directions that we could follow but constantly looking at that call feedback if it is coming through and going okay is this actually feeding back to that bigger problem we're facing yes okay we need to actually validate a more users experiencing this and then Mm. uh, kind of pursue it that way and flow through that way with the feedback but yeah I think the prototyping is something that we're seeing already is doing such amazing things for our product and for what we're shipping and it's giving the engineers so much more context but the designers so much more validation and there's less refinement processes which obviously takes time so I think it's it's a really exciting thing to be a part of and being able to then run those A-B tests. We're running a few at the moment kind of in tandem to solve each of the three problems and seeing those results funnel through every day and analyzing that data and that quant data, but also hearing the qual feedback that the community are volunteering to us before we even reach out as well. There's just so many learnings that we can pull out of everything we're doing. And it's exciting. The more you learn, the more you then get excited about other problems that you can solve too. So yeah, I wonder how you how you manage because like the problems are endless, right? There's always something you can be working on. And yeah, prioritization, you mentioned it earlier, like that becomes then the most important uh component of your strategy, right? Trying to figure out there's a million things we could pursue, how do we prioritize them? Mm-hmm. Um and so it sounds like user feedback is a big part of it. Kind of walking that back to a real core problem and trying to figure out what's driving that problem for a user. Um when you mentioned prototypes, are these primarily just internal things that you're using? Yeah, so we yeah. have our designers are amazing at the Figma prototypes that they create. They're Figma, yeah. so, so clever. The things I watch them do, I'm like, you guys are just amazing. But we also, <laughs> for things like we're looking into uh, improving our search engine and search functionality. And so for that, getting the guys to pull together a very pulled back MVP that we can chuck into test flight and give to users. Obviously, prototyping a search engine is very challenging who knows what they're going to search so (laughs) getting those kinds of things and knowing that investing time in those learnings is actually worthwhile for the feedback we'll be able to pull through and get Mm. is again that prioritization thing of how much is this learning worth it and if it were to fail would I be okay justifying that I've spent x amount of time from designers and engineers on that failure and weighing those things up as well it's all a balancing act but of course yeah yeah (laughs) I often see as well, like, um, companies that are relatively new in terms of having a product role or a product function that's dedicated, uh, there's always like the, the idea that would like to go in with frameworks and, mm. you know, use like really structured approaches to product. The reality is often, you know, that, that best intention will use frameworks, but the reality is you kind of just have to fly around and do what you got to do. Uh, how, which end of the spectrum does Pick land on? And you personally, like, are you kind of more framework driven or are you just like intuition driven or, or you know, follow the data? It's it's a really interesting one because because the product team at Kick is new mm. and I've been part of it since since it was created within the team. We've already been through so many phases. We did have the engineers were working in a very uh, scrum style, but they had their Kanban board and we were kind of there was structured sprints and timelines and it was all very driven by that framework. And so when we brought product into it, we leveraged that, that was existing. And so 
I worked to sprints and made sure that we were on track and we had that flow through the dev board and everything mm. was kind of happening with that structure. But when we took a step back, it was because we were feature factory driven. So everything we were producing needed to have that framework because we weren't solving problems. We were hedging bets on, I guess, quite light feedback that hadn't been analyzed by a product team. And yeah. so that that served its purpose. But when we then pulled out, I'm now the squad lead for uh, activation and we've got activation, acquisition and enablement. And even that, it's so interesting because each squad actually needs a different structure now. Okay. We're looking at ours and because we are so problem driven in activation and we're trying to really work out how we can meet user needs within our trial period and improve that conversion, the amount of analysis you don't want to take, you don't want to put a really, really structured framework on it because there's so many directions that we could go down and we need to be constantly pivoting. Mm. Whereas an enablement team, we ran a mass migration, uh, data migration, the kind of before this restructure, which I ran, and that's still going on and trying to make sure that that has a strict framework because there's not really room for error. The errors in that regard are a negative thing for the company, whereas errors or failures in an activation regard are learnings that are so valuable. Sure. So it's not it, a one size fit all. It is definitely not a one size fit all. And it's so interesting too, because our team's relatively small. We're still a startup. So you look at those bigger scale companies and it's still everything I read and watch and listen to is still reinforcing that constant need to adapt and change based on where you're at and what the company OKRs are and where, where your numbers are at. And so I think at the moment we're definitely leaning towards much more of a intuitive flow and prioritizing quality and feedback and waiting for that data to flow through as well and mm. being patient with the learnings and the A-B tests you're running, but still carrying that framework structure for an enablement team as well. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different approach, but it's achieving a lot of productivity, I think, adapting to it, which is exciting as well yeah yeah and yeah i mean you really have to adapt to the context you're in and like you say different teams have different contexts and different needs and they're driving different things for the business so that makes sense what do you think has been for you in that transition since you joined the company to to today what's been the biggest kind of personal challenge you faced at work and you know you're doing you're taking on all these new skills you're i imagine the learning curve is extremely steep um what, yeah. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about the biggest challenges you faced. I'd say there's a couple. I think to start off very like surface level, the, the biggest challenge I faced was the data migration that I spoke to before because that was very much being thrown in the deep end. It was so technical. We had one, one analytics platform that was also our CRM and it was um, C CDP as well and it was all just in this one hub. And so it was finally time for us to completely redo every event we had in our app, migrate to we transitioned to Braze and Mixpanel and BigQuery and Segment as our data hub. So it was a huge transition technically. So I would say that mm. was the biggest challenge was learning from th things would continuously go wrong, which of a migration of that size, no amount of preparation can prevent that. And learning how to adapt to problem solving with dips in data, which stakeholders rely on and all those kinds of things and minimizing those to the smallest amount and working out how to run systems in parallel and all those kinds of things. That was definitely skill set wise, the biggest challenge and the most valuable thing I've ever done as well in learning. And I yeah, that, I imagine that comes with a lot of challenges because you're learning and doing at the same time, right? You're trying to like 
quickly upskill and understand the technology and the tech stack behind it. You're also trying to like give it a direction and keep things on course. Um, stress management. Talk to me about like what are you doing to you know balance that off either at work or outside of work. Yeah, stress management is a big thing, and I think that goes that goes that talks a lot to the transition between marketing and product as well. Is that for the first bit, I really did try to carry all of it by myself and get it all done. And so the hours I was working just, they, they weren't feasible to do things that make me happy. Mm. And so now pulling that back to making sure that I'm, I'm going to dance class a couple of times a week. Cause it's that stress reliever because then I'm a better person at work and I'm more focused and I show up and I train every morning. And again, that then allows me to be available to the whole team and to support the squad and also to do my own work to the best standard that I'm proud of. So those kinds of things that understanding what what stress management is to me, mm. it's so unique to everyone and so many people will give you advice or say if you're burnt out you should do X, Y, Z, but it's just it's so unique to each person. Obviously there's generalised advice, but what makes one person happy isn't what makes another. And I think once I maintain that stress management state, I also love my job so much that that also is stress management because sure. yeah, 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 things are on fire, but you're working together and you're solving them and it's a challenge and it's so much fun. So you can kind of, those fires become less scary. They don't become that. They're more just a little spot that you need to look into and fix, but everything remains under control. And yeah, yeah. So you got to fill your cup in your you personal do. life so that you can have a more uh, optimized and productive experience at work, right? And it doesn't feel exactly. so much like work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the, the more you prioritize, it sounds cliche to say the work-life balance because I think that's a very tainted term now and I I think when you love your job it's okay to put a lot into it because mm. it it brings me joy and I'm so passionate about it but it is that thing of you can't pour from an empty cup and you do have to fill it up with a lot of different different ways that are unique to you I'm an introverted person and so I I need to have my alone time in the morning at training before I then give my energy to people otherwise I don't have that cup full to pour from so yeah, yeah definitely kind of finding that balancing act in the workforce and being being young as well is definitely it contributes to that because you have that internal internal monologue of I don't have the experience to validate what I'm doing so I need to work harder and harder and harder to prove myself because I'm young so I'm mm. acknowledging that, that inexperience in this position which I've been actually working towards this position and I know logically that I have been for a really long time because of the breadth of skill set that product requires. But tangibly looking at that experience that you've had in that titled role, yeah. it means that you can continuously work work yourself kind of to the ground because you're trying to prove to yourself more than anything. Like they, right. they know that you're worthy of that position and that you're, you wouldn't be there, they wouldn't have given you the opportunity if you weren't deserving of it, but still trying to prove that is definitely, yeah. It's an interesting. But yeah. There's like the, um, the logical part of your brain, which can rationalize why you're fully capable and, you know, getting through the imposter syndrome that everyone feels. Mm. Um, but how do you deal with the emotional side of it? Right. Because sometimes it can feel really real that like you got to prove yourself. And even though you can, you know, list down all the reasons you're great at this. How do you get past that that feeling? Something I'm still working on. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. It's definitely 
it's definitely a challenge, I think, as well, being a female in tech okay. too. All of our all of our engineers and and PMs actually are men, which is quite common. So I think validating and kind of getting as many mentors and as many opinions from people that have been there is something that is most valuable to me. I and I think this is something that comes from dance, but praise and and good feedback that doesn't drive doesn't drive me because that's not why I'm doing what I'm doing and I find constructive feedback to be so complimentary because people care mm. enough to want you to do better so finding those mentors and those people outside of the company that can look at what you're doing from a process and from a I guess a systematic approach as opposed to what the company itself is trying to achieve I think is definitely most beneficial in validating that logical side versus that irrational imposter syndrome side and yeah. working out and also self-analyzing why those things are coming up and telling yourself or reassuring yourself in a certain way I find super helpful as well. I listened to, a, it was actually a Brene Brown podcast. Oh, but no. yeah, she was Brene saying Brown, yeah. that, yeah, when she, she was saying when she argues with her partner, or when she has a problem with her partner, when she goes to articulate that problem so that she can validate if she's making it up or not, she'll say the story I'm telling myself is. Mm. And that's actually something that I say to myself a lot. I'll say the story I'm telling myself is they think I'm going to fail at this because I haven't done this and X, Y, Z. And then you look at it and you're like, no, I've, I've done all those things. And they they aren't thinking that. That's that imposter syndrome talking. And so that logical brain can kind of come in and yeah. Going on, um, yeah, it just kind of pulls it away from your face so you can actually yeah. see it for what it is, yeah, exactly. And when you read it back or you look at it back, I journal every day mm. and I'll read it back sometimes. I'll, I'll journal specifically to make myself read it back. And I actually, it sounds a little bit weird, but I read it out loud because yeah. it removes myself from it. And when you read it out loud, you look at it and you're like, that's that's stupid. Why am I, <laughs> why am I putting those standards on myself when clearly yeah. the preparation's there? We're, we're all definitely our own harshest critics, that's for sure. 100%. Yeah, yeah. There was uh, something I heard on the radio. It was on Triple J recently. And they were saying, I think this was on Are You OK Day. Yeah. And um, the idea was, what's the worst thing you've ever said to yourself about yourself? Um, go and say it to someone else. Just yeah. verbalise it and see how that is treating yourself. Um and I think, you know, it's definitely in these sort of roles, like in product management, like you're thrown in the deep end on so many things because, mm -hmm. like you say, you're a bit of a jack of all trades. Um, there's constant change, um, constantly new stuff to be doing and prioritizing. So you, you can end up critiquing yourself pretty harshly when you're not, you know, hitting what you think is top performance, um, especially for you. Well, you know, you've come from a performance background in so many different aspects of your life. I imagine there's a lot of pressure on yourself to perform at a high degree too. Yeah, there definitely is. I think it's such a blessing and a curse to have the discipline and the the work ethic that it instills in you because it does create that driver and that you know what it you know what it is to be passionate about something as well. Mm. And so feeling that passion it really fuels the want to the want to do well, but not necessarily personally. Like I I always want to do well for the company and for the team and that's what dance yeah instills in you but at the same time you are pushing for a lot of the time an unachievable standard you're mm. pushing for there is no perfect in dance there is no good enough it's a consistent hustle and you do the same 
I always think of a tangible example is we'll do the same progression from when I was 11 years old. I still do it every single class to this day and it's never perfect. And so when you're mm. looking at this 13 year trajectory that, that I've done the same thing and I'm still trying to perfect it, it becomes very challenging to say, okay, that's good enough for now for me to learn on that concept of MVP and product is was so hard for me to crack <laughs> with because I was like, it's it's not perfect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that Making perfect for this? Yeah. yeah. Literally I'm like, but it's not it's not the perfect thing. And that, but that's that's not the point. And it can mm. be it's kind of flipping that narrative to being, okay, but it's the perfect thing for what the for the purpose it's about to serve. The perfect mm, thing maybe. to answer this question or validate this data or solve this problem. And trying to flip that on its head a little bit is yeah, it's a blessing and a curse to have that perfectionism instilled but wouldn't trade it, I would say. Just yeah, it's a, it's a great place to start from because you can always taper it back. Um, really? But trying to come at it from the other angle of like, oh, you're kind of not motivated to work on something too hard. Like it's very hard to build that up. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, it's so interesting to hear that, you know, it sounds like for you, dance has really taught you this like process-driven thing of maybe being, it, it's almost like a paradox because it's almost like, you know, you're never going to hit perfection. Yeah. But at the same time, you're always aiming towards it. Mm. Um, and so you just end up being so um, built into the process, which in some ways that's a really healthy way because you become less dependent on hitting the goal and then you get there and you're done, right? Mm. Um, so it's maybe a healthier way to approach work where you're not just going in there to hit a goal and then you're tapping out. You're You're in it for the mission. You're in it for like, the daily churn and, you know, getting things done. Um, and so it doesn't really have an end state. No. And I think if you, if you're pushing for that end state, that even that end number, and that's why I love when OKRs are really unachievable because mm. you know that you're actually not working towards that number. You're trying to get closer. And so there's so many little wins and increments that you're enjoying the process and you're, forming your own wins to work towards this end goal, but you know that it's not necessarily achievable for the time period that it's been set. And that that is what dance is as well. You know that you're working towards this thing, but at the end of the day, if you're in front of an audition panel and you don't look the way that they want, you you won't get through the next round. So mm. you have to enjoy that process because otherwise it's too brutal. And I think it goes back to, and I know a lot of people I read a lot about athletes. I find athlete stories really interesting. And so many of them will say, so many Olympians will say I was on the podium and I won gold and I, it wasn't the feeling I expected. And so a lot of them will either quit or they'll realize how much they love the process. And that was definitely mm. me with dance. I realized very early on when I won my first national champ, I was like, I actually just loved the training. I was like, this is amazing, but it's not as amazing as I thought it would be. And I had to completely shift my mindset. And I think that's what you have to do with product as well. You're so driven by metrics and by data. And at the end of the day, that's what the stakeholders want to hear. But mm. if that's what your process is driven by, it it sets you up to fail from the get-go because you have to care so much about how to solve the problem and the rest actually will follow through. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely so many parallels in it. Dropping the life lessons. This is like, uh, it's not a life lesson. Like, honestly, um, you got to enjoy like the present, right? And, and that's yeah. almost what this is. It's like, how can I enjoy dance every single day, turning up and doing that thing that I've done a million times before and still get pleasure and enjoyment and, and all of that out of it? 
and it's the same with product it's like it, it's gonna be a grind right mm-hmm. it's, there's days where it's just like you just got to get your head down and get the work done um but you, you know you got to find a way to to maintain that day after day after day year after year and in in product like if anything, you're always moving upwards. Um, it's always building to something new, uh, you know, that next role or that next release. So, uh, yeah, definitely have to be less outcome dependent. Um, as funny as it sounds saying that about product. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's such a life lesson. It is. You're right. It's such a paradox the way that you you always have to be producing something, but you can never be focused on the fact. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's like that work. Yeah. 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 So talk to me a little bit more about, you know, obviously being a, a female in product, a really, up until this time, like really male dominated. Um, yeah. What's the, for you, like the importance of role models and, you know, how have you navigated that? Any other challenges you faced? Yeah, I think the the thing I noticed growing up so much, even throughout school was this desire to it's it's that double bind, right? Of and it's something I've looked at a lot in uni is you're always as a female, you're told you can't be too loud or too outspoken or too driven. But and I was always I grew up being called bossy or I was always the one that I got called the teacher's pet a lot as well because I would time manage and then have time to help out. Mm. And so I would shrink myself and shrink my voice so much because boys were being much louder than me and they were being much more disruptive and much more sure of themselves. And I admired that, but they were praised for it and we Mm. were pulled down for it. And so I think it's definitely a lot better now. I look at the kids that I teach at dance and they're so loud and I love it and I empower it so much because I love that they have that voice. And I think it's, it's getting better and better, but I think you carry that through to, to your, to your work, work life and your career. And so sitting in a room where it obviously does help that Steph and Laura are females and are young females and young entrepreneurs I think that really helps facilitate that role model in front of you that they they have that voice and they're willing to use it but even you see them question themselves in what they're saying because of what the industry and the world we live in essentially has so yeah I think backing yourself is the most challenging thing because it's you're judged for how you articulate it, you're judged for what you're saying, and you're also underestimated a little bit. But at the same time, it's such a fire to, it, it's like a fire up my butt to push and work harder to kind of prove that wrong. So, right, it it so really feels for you. It, but yeah. it definitely fuels me. I think also to be be that role model. I still I still haven't found that person where I. I hear them in podcasts and all those kinds of things, but from a mentor perspective, I kind of grab a bunch of different things from a lot of different people. Like my dance principal, who's known me since I was three, she is the most incredible boss because the way she nurtures her employees and the way she facilitates their growth and supports them and is there for them, but also there for herself. That's what I pull from that. But then I'll look at Laura and I look at how much passion she has for what the mission of the company is and how she instills that and mm. I pull that so there's a bunch of things but there's no one person where I look at them and I'm like I I want to be mentored by you and I want to do what you're doing because it's just too early in women's careers essentially and women having a voice to to have that yeah and so in any way that I can being able to role model that even for my little kids that I teach 
I even down to will play acting musical statues and I always they go through jobs and I always there are a bunch of 21 five-year-olds and we go through doctor and lawyer and all these ones where <laughs> yeah. when I was little that wasn't what I was told I could be yeah and, not out of reach yeah exactly instilling that that's within reach for them from a young age I think yeah it's such a mission of mine and such a driver of what I do is to be that role model that I didn't didn't have incredible yeah yeah incredible yeah. Do you see it changing in the product space? Like, I'm not sure if you're attending a lot of industry things and, and stuff like that. What do you see, like, um, the the balance becoming a little bit? Uh, I think so. Yeah. I think innately, cis women are or cis females. We the empathy that you need in product mm. is quite naturally that maternal instinct. It's it's in there, and so I think so many of these incredible PMs that I'm meeting. I recently had the opportunity to work with one. Her name was also Holly and it was hilarious because <laughs> the only two PMs were two female Hollies and it was, it was a yeah. lot. <laughs> Bit of a she, weird space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But she was so incredible in fostering even that concept of a lot of the time when women are talking, they'll say, hey, I just wanted to. And she was like, pull the just out. You didn't. You don't need to soften what you're saying by saying, I just wanted to do this. You just say, I right. wanted to reach out. And so many little things like that where I was looking at her and I was like, you're, you're like what the industry needs. And then I recently was part of the product, the folklore product chapter yep. workshop and hearing all, it was kind of 50-50 split of women and men talking and it was so incredible to see that, that shift and also that respect that, men had for women and vice versa as well it was kind of a, it was a unique thing to to witness was everyone empowering each other regardless of gender I think it was yeah it was super exciting and I definitely see that shift I think there's a long long way to go of course yeah. I think it's quite a, a leading industry and in, in the equality that it's seeing comparative to other industries as well particularly yeah. because it is quite a new industry as well I think it. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're right, especially in terms of it being less something that's kind of, um, you know, you, like we said, you know, it's not something you just kind of go and study and then you get a job. Mm. I think because people are coming in from all different industries, it kind of lends itself to really good um, balance there in terms of, you know, access to everyone, opportunity for everyone. Um, you know, we got to get a get past a bunch of like the corporate Australia stuff and, you know, <laughs> um, but the fact that it is more often than not like a very startup driven role too. Mm. It's something that like is in from ground zero a lot of the time. Uh that positions it well to be to be diverse. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I think it's it's definitely a first mover for sure. And I think that's what what STEM needs as well is that mm. almost introduction of an industry within it, even yeah. though it's within tech, to lead that change because once there are PMs and there's more representation in women in that area, the like developers and coders and designers and all of those kinds of things, the PM role is kind of the, I guess, the facilitator of a lot of those things. So yeah. hopefully it's my dream that that can influence those other industries as well and kind of feed it through as much as possible. Yeah, I hope so. I think, yeah. yeah, representation is what needs to drive the change for sure. Yeah, great. And, and so I suppose, you know, what, where do you go to from now? You've been at kick for coming up to two years, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, what's next? Like, do you have your eye on a certain role? Is there a, another product you want to be working on? Are you interested in leadership? What's the, what's the plan? 
I definitely long-term am interested in leadership and mm. in like I, I guess climbing in terms of responsibility, I would say. But I think the only way to be a good manager is to be managed and I think the only way to be a good leader is to be led. And so I'm too young to kind of have that clear vision of what product or I know it wants to, I know I want it to be in product. I think it just combines so many of the skills that I've always been so passionate about. And I, I didn't even know it was a thing to combine Mm. all those things. And so product is definitely where I want to be, but I think I need to be led by a few more different leaders and managed by a few more different people to kind of really be receptive to those learnings. Every time something happens that I am not happy with as an employee or not necessarily not happy with, but I don't feel supported in or I found really challenging or disheartening. I write down why I won't do that when I'm a manager and a leader. I literally have a list mm, in, my, wow. in my notes of it made me feel like this, the action that I would have preferred to have received was this. And I'm sure I'll go back and read those and be like, oh, I actually now I'm a manager. I understand why they yeah. did that you see or the why that slipped yeah. through the cracks or whatever it may be. But if I can try my best to, I'm also doing my master's in management and just trying to enable my learning as much as possible on this journey and be really self-aware and conscious and present in being an employee and being a managed employee at the time. That way I can progress to that leadership position in 10, 15 years' time, having known I've consciously pulled in all that knowledge from the people that were leading me. There's definitely there's definitely a few products that I'm really passionate about as well that I would love to be a part of. Mm. I I hope they're in my future and I'll keep working towards them. But I think even with my transition into products, something I've realized is that if you give 100% to what you're working on now, somehow it will pay off in what you do in the future, even though you might not know and it goes to that continuous progression. Like I might not know why I'm pushing so hard for this data project, for example, but in five years' time I might be leading a migration of a bigger company and all those challenges will make sense. So The experiences and the learnings and all that, even if the outcome of a particular project doesn't pan out, sometimes that's the learning, right? Exactly, 100%. And I think... Being in a startup as well as a PM, like there's there's not many bigger companies where I could manage a data analytics migration, I could manage the build of an in-app challenge for a run program, and then also look into a recommendation engine and analyze and go through a bunch of spikes with my engineers for that. Like they are such a broad array of things. And I think mm. getting to dip my toe in each of those waters is so valuable in a startup environment. And I'm definitely not done with that yet. Right. So, yeah. It's funny because you say 10, 15 years. I think, I mean, you're already talking like a leader. So I think you're halfway there. Um, And it's clear that, you know, your trajectory is just like on a rocket ship. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't sell yourself short there. Thank you. Um, What do you think are kind of the couple of, for someone, let's say two or three years ago, you'd never been exposed to product before what are the skills you wish you had or you know what would you recommend to someone who's hearing about product now they're seeing a lot in the tech space what skills should they acquire immediately yeah totally I think the first one is communication I think when you're in product you're working with stakeholders and knowing how to communicate to them Hmm. I think which you can develop those skills even down to 
being willing to push through introducing yourself to someone new at an event or going to networking events alone, even going to, I started to make sure I took myself to a bunch of uh, like shows and restaurants and all these different things by myself to push through that barrier of being scared to talk to new people because you need to really understand very quickly how to talk to stakeholders and how to talk to external parties as well mm. and how to communicate with them. My two co-founders are so interesting in talking to them because one is very qual-driven is one and one is very quant-driven. And so if I communicate in a qualitative way to the one that's quant-driven, she'll it, it falls on deaf ears it's very much like that that's great but where are the numbers at and vice versa for the other so improving those communication skills and talking to who is listening rather than what you want them to hear is crucial and very pivotal as well when you're working with designers and engineers because they are very different people and they are incredible at what they do because they're so different mm. but sometimes that you have to bridge that gap for them because someone with such a creative mindset like a designer and so clever and so innovative and user-centric comparative to the structured framework-driven coders or engineers, you need to be able to bridge that gap of communication to achieve that common goal and talk in both languages. And so, yeah, communication is definitely the first one. The second I would say is probably investing time in developing emotional intelligence as well. I know that goes to communication, but also mm. being receptive to how mm. people work and making an environment where they feel safe to voice their opinion or voice their, I guess, solution ideas or initiative ideas or problem spaces, really developing those emotional intelligence skills, empathy, understanding I think a lot of that comes through self-awareness as well and mm. being willing to self-reflect. That's why I journal every day so that I can build my self-awareness to then understand other people better. I think emotional intelligence is really crucial. And then the last skill I would probably say would be probably decision-making but from an analytical perspective. I know the first two were sure. very yeah, yeah. emotionally driven, but understanding research, qual and quant data, it's the backing for everything we do. It's how you justify the time you've spent it's how you analyze what to do next. So being able to make those analytical decisions and also back yourself in them and understand how to undertake research and develop hypotheses and goals and methods for that research that all attribute back to a problem. I yeah. think that would probably be the third skill is, yeah, that that analytical side of things. Yeah, 100% agree with all of these, uh, 100%. It's so important to to understand yourself and understand others because mm. the product management role, it's so much about influencing people that don't report directly to you Yeah, uh, where you can't use authority or, you know, anything like that. Totally. You kind of have to tailor the message. It's so much about alignment as well. So communication, EQ, absolutely. And at the end of the day, we have to rationalise every decision. So, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Thank you for sharing those. Um, look, we're just going to switch gears for a moment. So I've got some rapid fire questions for you. Mm -hmm. So you can give the answers in just a couple of words or, or however you prefer. Yep. Um, so 10 questions and we're going to do them real quick, okay? Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, your riskiest bet in product, has it paid off or failed? Paid off. Paid off. Awesome. Quick money or long game? Definitely long game. Yeah, I thought I knew the answer to that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, workaholic confession, yes or no? 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, mm. What is your best life hack? Ooh. Uh, my best life hack. I want to say something like fun or tangible, but honestly, I think I'll say my life mantra is always be kinder than necessary because it comes back to you. Nice. Love it. Yeah. Uh, so here's a controversial one. Musk or Zuckerberg, who would win in a fight? I'm going to go Zuck. Zuck. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's trained for it, right? Absolutely. I'm like, the preparation's there. <laughs> uh, okay, more on the product side. Um, what's your must-have product management tool out of these three? Jira, Asana, or Trello? Trello. Trello. Yeah. Best product okay. analytics tool, Mixpanel, Amplitude, or Google Analytics? Mixpanel. Mixpanel. Yep. Um, do you have an instant burnout cure? I wish there was one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> um, and we, yeah, I guess like fill your cup stance, right? Yeah. Yeah. Class, that's my that's my cure. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is one trend people should be pursuing in the next twelve months? Ooh, it's going to be very product, but. AI recommendation engines, I think. 100%. Everyone's got to be on the front foot for that. Yeah, personalization, right? Oh, yeah, all personal. <laughs> yeah. And last one, what is one thing you'd tell your younger self? I would tell my younger self that it all works out eventually and it will all make sense, I think. Right. Yeah, that would be my my one thing. Love that, love that. Awesome. Look, uh, we've covered a lot of ground today, Holly. Um, what I suppose one last question for you. Yeah. Um, what do you recommend our listeners do immediately after listening to this podcast to kickstart their own journey into product? What's the kind of one actionable step they could take today? One actionable step. Hmm. I think... If people are listening to this podcast, there's obviously an inkling or a, a slight desire to want to be in the product space if they're not already. So I think the one thing I would say to do, and it's unique for everyone, <laughs> personalized, but I would say the one thing that they know they're putting off, whether it be sending that one message, making that one LinkedIn connection, enrolling in that course, applying for that job, just do the thing because waiting on it and anticipating what might happen is a lot worse and a lot more unknowns than actually just doing the thing. So I think based on my one text that led me here, I <laughs> yeah. would say send, send the message, do the thing. Send the, the message. Yeah. yeah, that's it. it. Pays off. Holly, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast uh, and for sharing all your stories and insights. It's been an absolute joy for me. Uh, I hope you've had a good time too. Uh -huh. um, and to our listeners, uh, a big thank you for listening this far. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you want to hear future episodes uh, and be sure to drop us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Thank you very much. Thank you.